Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. It is the week after Resurrection Sunday, and I was uh, thinking about uh, John Updike's quote, uh, thinking about last week and the reality of the resurrection. We looked a little bit uh, at our sunrise, and again, I want to thank everyone who participated in that and how hard that was just to have a few of our team, team members there, but I uh, would have loved to have the entire church. We tried so desperately to get everybody together. It was just uh, the hotels were just not allowing us to do it. Anyway, uh, long story short, uh, we I said, I just can't do this in front of no faces. And now I'm back in my office. It's just me. But it's you too. So welcome into my office. And we're going to continue to move forward. But I, I was thinking about the quote from John Updike just about the resurrection. And again, let me just... I think it's a beautiful quote, and it's exactly where my heart is. It says, make no mistake, if he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fail. Jesus wasn't resurrected, the church would have failed over a thousand years ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, the church would have failed by now, but he was raised. And it says, let us not mock God as some would do today with metaphor or analogy or sidestepping transcendence. The fact that we are not just molecules making of the event a parable or a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. Let us, let us walk through the door, I think symbolizing Jesus uh, walking through things after his resurrection appearing. Uh, this was a body. This was a real body. This was Jesus' body. Uh, it rekindled, yes. Reknit, yes. Glorified, of course, but a new body. I was on the phone this morning with a, a precious woman who'd lost her husband in the last few days, uh, part of the Church of the Red Door. They haven't been able to attend for a while. He'd been failing in his own health. How do you have those conversations? Maybe you're online today and you're saying, I, just, I don't even know how to think about death. It just feels like an unbelievable grief. Well, if I didn't have, when I'm talking to people that I, that I believe or they haven't confessed Jesus before, it's, it's, I don't know where the hope is in that. I, I, it's so difficult. I mean, I can be there to console. And, but in the end, it's always a balance between grief and sorrow, the human side of suffering, which this one precious woman and her family certainly suffering the loss of her husband. 64 years of marriage. I told her this morning, I said, what, what an incredible legacy you've left for your children, your grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren down the road. And she said he was just so precious. I mean, if you can live with somebody for 64 years and still be more in love than you were day one. And yet, so there was the grief side of it. But there's also, and paradoxically, just also a celebratory moment, not for her, not for the family, but a celebratory moment that he's not suffering anymore. And he had suffered the last, these last few years and certainly even these last few weeks, even more so than he ever had. And so how do you mix this sweet with sour? Well, you mix, the fact that there's a mix at all is a function again, like we talked about last week of the resurrection. New bodies. One day, new cosmos. One day, new, uh, oh wow, a new flawless soul, not pulled by the gravity of sin. So that was where we kind of jumped ahead in some sense, and since we're going through the Gospel of Luke. And now we're going to move back 
to where we were. We're going to pick up this Luke chapter 5. We're going to look at this next scene in the life of Jesus. And I'm going to read it to you to start, and then we're going to go back and begin to unpack some of this. And I, I think it's going to impact you this morning. I've entitled this morning, uh, Dropping In on Jesus with, uh, with No Flowers and Not Even a Card. I mean, we're going over to his house, and we got nothing to give. We got nothing. We bring nothing. We're bearing no gifts. Not a bottle of wine, not cards, not, not anything. We've got nothing. But he still wants us to drop in on him. Okay, you ready? Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. Are you ready? Now, according to Mark's gospel, this would have been in the, in the city of Capernaum where he did much, many of his miracles. It said, verse 17, One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there. I want to stop for just a second. Here they were sitting there. Why were they sitting there? Because they had heard stories and maybe some of them were in some way impacted. Maybe they were thinking maybe this could be the Messiah. But I think what we see pretty consistently with the Pharisees, which means separated ones, they had separate. They were separate from the, the dirty people. They were separated from the unholy, the unclean. They were, they were the religious uh, ones with real pedigree. They were the ones that were trying the hardest uh, and they were separate from the, from the masses. And certainly to find themselves in this region, and certainly there were Pharisees up in this portion, but it says many had come from Jerusalem and surrounding areas, and here they were sitting there. And the question, of course, is why were they sitting there? And I think uh, it's pretty clear that they were trying to catch him in some kind of uh, something. They wanted to accuse him, find reason to accuse him. They saw him as a blasphemer, as, as a usurper, and they wanted to put him in his place and get him out of the picture. I think that's pretty consistent as we see. Not all of them. As we, you can see in John chapter 3, is a great encounter with one of these named Nicodemus, who was actually a believer. Uh, born out in some very powerful ways and conversations he had with Jesus and even after Jesus' death. So they were sitting there and they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and even from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord, I'm going to go back and unpack this. This is kind of hard to understand. But the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Well, what does that mean? Well, we'll talk about that. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. Many of you will have heard this story. Don't, don't lose me here because we, we want to try to capture, let this stimulate our imagination. Here are these guys carrying this paralytic, unable to move at all, completely helpless. And they couldn't get in because of the crowds and they were bringing him in. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd and in front of Jesus. Now, the most of many of the dwellings back during the time of Jesus would have had an outside stairway leading up to the roof, and then it could have been dirt or thatch, or in this case, tiles of some sort that would have been in, in a way removable. So it wasn't like they were having to break in and destroy the property, although it would have probably caused a mess, and it certainly would have been a disturbance. And they put him right in front of Jesus. They He was dropping in, truly dropping in on Jesus with nothing to offer except for his own problems. And seeing their faith, okay, seeing their faith, his faith, he was helpless. He had nothing. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now we'll get a little different account that I'm going to look at uh, in a minute. 
and it adds some more detail to this moment. But no healing, no nothing. He says the sins. Can you imagine what these guys are doing? They're probably thinking, we came here to see him get healed. We weren't trying to have a theological moment here. We're not trying to have a spiritual forgiveness moment. We're, we're just trying, our friend is really desperate. He's completely helpless. He's unable to do anything. His, he's wasting away before our very eyes. And Jesus leads with this. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, okay, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins? but God alone. We're going to talk about that a little bit more this morning as well. But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, again, Jesus could read people's mail. It's actually available to us in some ways through the gift of the Spirit. Not perfectly like Jesus did, but one of the gifts of knowledge and and things that the Spirit can give us is that sometimes God will give us insight into the reasonings of people's heart to help us talk to them more effectively and create some more cogent arguments as uh, to allow them to sidestep some of the stones that are in their life from taking a next step in belief. He was aware too of their reasonings, answered and said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you? Or say, get up and walk. Well, anybody can say your sins are forgiven. Who, who has the authority is maybe a question, but anybody can say that. But to actually perform an upending of the natural order, he goes, I'm going to prove to you by doing that, not unlike what we've seen in weeks past with the demonic and the lepers. He said, I'm going to upend the natural order so that sign miracles again. I'm going to show you a sign miracle to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins. That's what he's saying. Verse 24, but so that you may know that this, then he calls himself the son of man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. I wonder how much pressure Jesus felt. What if it didn't happen? I don't think he felt any pressure. I think he was so connected. If you'll remember, we look back at verse 16 prior to this, and it always going away to a lonely place, always going away to a lonely place. Maybe the father had already showed him this situation. I don't know, but he certainly, there was power there for healing. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God and they were filled with fear. It's, it's a mixed bag here, you know? Oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. And you're, there's glorifying God, but then there's also an attending fear that goes with that too. What are we dealing with? Who is this guy? Where does he get this authority? How does he get this power? And then they simply remarked that we have seen remarkable things today amazing encounter that Jesus has. Okay, so I want to go back, look at a few things here first, and I want to answer this question. I'm not going to answer it, but I'm going to give you some thoughts that I have as it relates to, again, the the 17th verse, and it says, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healings. If we go back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, it simply says that Jesus was unable to perform any miracles because there was so much unbelief. So we know that there were moments in time 
where belief was not present and Jesus was not able to perform. So we could deduce from that then say, well, there was faith here available. Certainly his friends were demonstrating faith by going to such lengths to crawl up on top of a roof, un, you know, take the tiles away and begin to lower him right in and drop him in right in the middle of what Jesus was doing, which was, you know, speaking and throngs of people crowding the house outside. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing moment, but what an interruption. There was certainly faith there. But, of course, the question might also be, would, did Jesus accrue some of this faith by verse 16, getting away to a lonely place to pray? Now, I, I'm not making a statement. I'm just saying all these things are attending this verse, and they're surrounding it. The Greek word, again, you go away into the wilderness, uh, is uh, eremos, which simply means it's a it's a could be a desert region, but it's a, a lonely place, a solid a solitary place, an uninhabited place. No cell phones, no television remote controls. Or Jesus consistently and without. I mean, he was relentlessly on task, and the way that he stayed on task was he was again, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, he was always going away to a lonely place. Maybe that's where some of this. You know, and that's all it says. There was the power of the Lord was present for him to do healing. Did he accrue some of that power through these lonely places, this Eremos, this wilderness places? Was that the case? And I would, I would say, in my own life, let me just be clear. In my own life, I have seen increases in my own spiritual uh, ability to reason and think and even teach and, and anything that I may have by getting away to lonely places. And, and maybe that's where some of this came to. We don't know. Maybe there was faith there and that's why he was able to heal. Or maybe it was a combination of both that and his accrual of this amazing insight and power that he had to get just like we have to get. Remember, he was tempted in the same way we are, and yet he was without sin. Of course he had a temptation not to, not to get away and pray. He would have just wanted to hang out with his buddies all night, and yet, you know, the disciples, and, you know, have a good time, and, you know, all that. I mean, Jesus had a good time on earth. I mean, he was filled with joy, and, and there was graciousness surrounding him, and there was great love of the people he was with, and he would have enjoyed, and yet he always went away to a lonely place. So uh, we don't really know there, but I, I take those two things. Those two things are are both in my mind. Now, I want to talk just r briefly about this idea of the true helplessness, helplessness of this man. So in preparing for this, I, I the Lord does this over and over. I, I can't tell you how many times God, I'll, I'll begin to just, Lord, what do you want to say? How do you want to speak? I mean, how do you want to teach this? There's a million different directions we could go here. How, what do you have for church at the red door? And I am in the middle of this the other day, and I'm kind of preparing and thinking through this. And I get a phone call from uh, a newly hired, uh, one of my precious friends for 35 years, a guy named Dennis and his wife, Leanne. And they were out here for uh, some staff meetings, and I had recently hired him for links as a region director all of the southeast. He'll, he'll be over, you know, Florida and uh, Georgia and all the, those areas in the southeast. And uh, and so they, they came out for a few days, and then they were flying back, and he had gotten back. I just said, how was your how was your flight back? Everything go okay for you and Leanne? He goes, well, I got to tell you a story. And he began to tell me this story, and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the story this morning in two parts. 
And I'm going to close with the finale. So you got to hang in there. You got to keep watching here if you want to hear this whole story. But it was so, as soon as he began to tell it, I go, this is the story. This is the story. So they caught their flight out of Palm Springs. They had to go through uh, Salt Lake. And then they had a flight from Salt Lake all the way back to Atlanta. So they were sitting on the runway in Salt Lake, having arrived at a reasonable time. Their flight got out of Palm Springs uh, on time, and they were sitting there. And is the case, if you fly, and many of you have flown a lot, I have flown way more than I ever had intended to through the years. And uh, you're sitting there at the gate, and the plane's still there, and you can't, you can't park. You're, you've arrived, but there's no place to deplane. And so they're sitting there and they've got a reasonably tight connection and kind of looking at the watch and they sit there five minutes and then 10 minutes and then 15 minutes. And now they're thinking, wow, this is going to get tight, 20 minutes. And now they're into half an hour waiting for the plane to get out of the, the starting block here so they can deplane, get and catch their other flight to Atlanta. And now they go, we're not going to make it. And uh, finally, the plane pulls out, they pull in, they get out. You know how that goes when you're on an airplane and the stewardess or steward comes on and says, okay, now everybody, if you don't have a close connection, stay seated. And I'm just like, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, right. That is not going to happen. I've never seen that happen. I mean, everybody just exactly the same. I'm like, okay, everybody has a close connection. I mean, people are just going to get up and they're going to go. I mean, it's just so they, I don't know why they do that, but they, they always feel obligated to do that so they were struggling to get out and then they you know ran to the next gate and and they got there and just as you would imagine the doors had closed not only the doors to get down the the jetway but the doors to the plane closed and so they they said well you can see the plane right there and they look out and their baggage is being you know moved and they can actually see their baggage and they're going well well we can do it and they said i'm sorry sir there's nothing we can do they can, you know, how helpless that feeling is. You're right there. There's your plane. And well, there's a flight going out in two and a half hours, the next flight to Atlanta, but we, it's full. You'll have to be on standby. So now their life is going to be completely upended without even knowing whether or not they're going to get on the next flight. Probably going to have to spend the night, you know, plans and this and people and all that going on. How helpless it is. I, I'm sure in some ways that began to feel like this this man, he's paralyzed. There's no way he can get. He's heard about this miracle worker. How's he going to get in to see him? Got a few friends. Well, guess what? There's an analog here. Guy comes back up the jetway and he says and, and kind of hears the conversation. And he goes, you know what? He whispers in the ear of the woman and she kind of looks a little frustrated. And he goes, I can get them on this plane. And, and Dennis and Leanne were like, oh my gosh, really? And he goes, come with me. And I, he, Dennis said she was a little frustrated. And so they, they go trouncing down the jetway and the door to the plane is already locked. You know how that kind of seal, you know, it's closed. And the guy starts knocking on the, on the door. And the stewardess on the inside, like, I'm not hearing this. I'm not opening it. And Dennis said, over five minutes, banging, banging on the door, banging on the door. She's not opening it. They're not, no, it's the plane's closed. They've already gone through their count. They've done the whole thing. They're going to be taking off here shortly. And he's banging on the door, banging on the door. And I'm thinking in my mind, this is just like the friends of this paralyzed man. They're, they're ripping the towels apart. And whatever it takes to get our friend in front of Jesus. Now, in this case, obviously, to get them on this plane, the people on the plane, they don't want somebody else to board. 
probably the people there, the person they're sitting next to is going, oh, wonderful. I've got these seats and I don't have anybody next to me. I mean, you know, they're ready to leave. The last thing that they want is somebody to interrupt what's going on. And yet, for some strange reason, this man feels compelled to get them on this plane. And then Dennis said, and then he did something spectacular. He pulled the emergency thing and the thing went off. And then the stewardess, very frustrated, opened the door and they were able to board the plane. This was an emergency moment here. These men had a friend. That's all we know. They were friends. Paralyzed. How long he'd been in that condition? We don't know. We don't know all the details. But for whatever reason, they were going to get him down that jetway and on that plane. They were going to drop him right in front of Jesus. Just like this man who found it in his heart. I'm getting getting you on that plane. And they were able to board and and get back. Now, there's a second part of the story, which is really great, but you're going to have to hold on for that. So you can see the helplessness maybe you felt in a situation. Can I tell you how helpless we are spiritually? You know, one of the things about the word is that the Bible consistently tells us that we are helpless. Romans 3, all of sin falls short of the glory of God. Everybody, we're all, we're all, yeah, some of us are oppressed, but we're also, all of us, the oppressor. We are the problem, but we're completely and utterly helpless. I want to go now, if you will, to look at Matthew's account, because we add a few details, and then we're, we're going to look at this forgiving of sins and why Jesus would do that. And then I'm going to close with the end of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, recounting the exact same scenario, but adding a few other details. Now, some people would see this as, see, they're, they're not the same. This gives more uh, credence to the fact that these are authentic eyewitness accounts, because every time you get eyewitnesses, again, they're going to come together and they're going to give slightly different details, slightly different. They don't, they don't conflict, but they may add color to it or add different words to it because they could have all been said. And that's what's important to see. This is not something that should shake your confidence in the, in the gospels and their synchronicity. It should actually give you um, more faith that we have a very reliable source in these synoptic gospels. So verse one through eight, Matthew nine, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, same guy, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Now, get ready. Take courage. (laughs) Son, your sins are forgiven. Take courage. Now, note that. Take courage. We don't get the take courage. It says, friend, your sins are forgiven in the other account. He could have easily said, take courage, friend. Your sins are forgiven. And then Luke's account is just, uh, friend, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't, doesn't, but it adds a little flavor here. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your heart? Which is easier? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk, but so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck, glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Same recounting, slightly different. We don't get the tiles. We don't get him dropped in, but we get this take courage. Now, you've got to understand, folks, that take courage. Why would he say take courage? Well, first of all, you've got to understand that back 
in these times, certainly the Pharisees would have believed this, and they put this heavy yoke on people. If you're sick, you're struggling, your health is failing, then there is sin in your life. Not too different than Job's friends, you know? There's something wrong here because bad things do not happen to good people. So if you got this bad thing happening to you, it's you. So they would have expected maybe uh, if Jesus really would have believed into the Mosaic law, rather than take courage, friend, your sins are forgiven. I've heard it said before, maybe, uh, maybe it would be uh, take cover, you know, take cover because this is your fault. I mean, God's pouring out his displeasure on you because look, you're clearly, clearly there's a physical problem here. And what a weightiness that was on people. Anybody who was sick or struggling had this religious cloud hanging over them, perpetuated by these many of these Jewish religious leaders. And, and they said, look, if there's no way this would be occurring in your life, there must be some kind of hidden sin. Either you, your parents, your, your lineage, something's going on there and you are at fault. You're getting everything you deserve, fella. And then Jesus says, take courage. Well, that's why he said, take courage. The Pharisees his whole life have been saying, take cover. God's pouring out his wrath on you. Jesus, uh-uh, I'm willing. Take courage. And by the way, all your sinful life, your sins are forgiven. You came for a physical healing, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something much more spectacular. I'm going to heal your soul. I'm going to heal your soul. So again, several things to note here. Uh, Jesus starts with sin forgiveness uh, before he does the physical. Again, why? Let me restate this. What's much more important than your physical healing or your financial situation or your relational challenge that you have right now, God takes those moments in time to reassemble us in our souls if we'll be open to him, if we will take courage. Yeah, you may be going through some really profound things right now. I don't know what you may be going through. Health challenge. I, I, as a pastor and many of us, Pastor Paul and Randy and all the others on our staff, executive team, we are well aware of what's going on in people's lives. I was talking to a doctor friend of mine recently and he said, you know, we're never gonna be out of business. You know, people are always sick and struggling and suffering. And so you need to understand that God clearly cares, clearly, but he cares more about your soul, the eternal you, than he even does compassionately about your body. He's willing to allow things, to struggles to happen in our lives, to reform us in our soul. And he uses those opportunities as we've talked about many, many times to do exactly that. And then, of course, Jesus goes on to confront the religious leaders and he uses this son of man thing that come out of Daniel. We'll look at that in a minute as well. And then what does he do? He, he, overturn, he proves it all by overturning the natural order. So let's look at this. First of all, let's talk about this forgiveness of sins. Now, they were right. Who can forgive sins but God? This is a clear claim of Jesus, again, to be God. It's, it could not be more clear for those who had an understanding of who really could forgive sins. First of all, God announced it would come through repentance. Now, I'm going to have two of our precious friends who, who are Washingtonians and down here for a period of time, Daryl and Marge Storkson. And they're going to read for you now Psalm 32, 1 through 6. 
and then we're going to go back and look at that briefly. But the point here is that God always announced that forgiveness would come through repentance. But notice, God announced it. God's doing the, he's setting up the template here. So Storksons, take it away. Good morning, Church of the Red Door family. We are Marge and Daryl Storkson from Tillergy here in the desert. We miss our church family just so much. We are just can't wait to worship together with you all. Marge is going to read Scripture Psalm 32, verses 1 through 6. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach you. Thank you. Thank you, Daryl and Marge, so much. So as you can see right here at the beginning, how blessed, right? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven? Who's doing the forgiving? Well, God is. Who's doing the covering? Well, we know later, and, and we'll see that in a minute, God's doing the covering. Whose sin is covered? Well, who can cover sin? Well, it starts with repentance. And here, here we clearly have David talking about his own, his own heart. And uh, how, how does it happen? Well, it starts with repentance. It's God's plan. We repent. God covers. And then we move forward. I mean, that, so that is the plan of God. But it's God doing, again, doing the initiating. And then secondly, God announced it through the prophet. 2 Samuel 12, 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. It's the Lord who covers. It's the Lord who forgives. It's the Lord who moves on our heart, even moves us to repentance. It's the, we are the paralyzed man. We are the, we are the guy at the gate that the doors are closed, the plane is leaving, we're completely and utterly helpless. And then God intervenes, sometimes through friends, but God intervenes. It's God who's doing the forgiving. So when Jesus says your sins are forgiving, what is he doing? He's making a claim again to be God. Exodus chapter 12 also begins to put in the blood. And that's why we are, again, church at the red door. This is the Passover. This is the blood on the, on the doorposts of the house. Verse 13 says, And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. I will forgive you of your sins, if you will. I won't call judgment down on you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. It was always the plan. God initiates, God does the covering, God uses blood, and then even more specifically. And they don't know this yet, but even more specifically, it's going to be the blood of his own son. It's God determined. And now, very specifically, it's blood, Exodus 12. But now we understand it's going to be the blood of his own right arm, of his own son. 
Hebrews 9, 6 through 7, and 11 through 14. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. So he's talking about this whole template that God had set up so they could understand it in word pictures. Temple, holy place, holy of holies, high priest once a year. But he doesn't go in without what? Taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So now this is New Testament. Paul's writing to the Jewish believers, the Hebrews. Well, okay, so it is the blood. We know the blood. Exodus 12 tells us it's the blood, but whose blood? Who's the high priest? Who takes it in? Well, now we know. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Uh, the place that he was going was not a man-made construction called the tabernacle or the temple. No, he was entering the heavenly realm temple, the tabernacle, the place of God dwelling, a new dimension, if you will. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkling those who had been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, and you've got to catch this this morning, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to, to serve a living God? So what, all is it, all, what, what does this mean? God is the one who initiates. God is the one who covers. God is the one who sprinkles. It is blood that's going to do the, do the work of cleansing for forgiveness and even more specifically, it's not goats, lambs, ashes of heifers, none of that. It's going to be his own son. It's where the New Testament makes sense of all the Old Testament. God wasn't interested in the blood of goats and bulls. He was doing it as a front running of what he ultimately was interested in. But it's only God who forgives and God initiates and God has the plan and it was his son. And he raised him from the dead to prove it all. So you can clearly see that when Jesus forgave this man his sin, it provoked a radical cry of blasphemy, blasphemy, right? Blasphemy occurs when someone speaks inaccurately about God or, or claims divine status. That's why they were saying blasphemous. Jesus was claiming to be God. And then secondly, Jesus said this son of man, the son of man. So you know that the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. Why did he use that? I, I love David Guzik on this because he says he could have said so that you know that the king has this power or you know that the Messiah, the anointed, the Christ, the, the anointed one who was coming, but those would have really stirred a lot of this nationalistic, Israel's going to be the champion, we're going to overthrow the Roman overlords. But guess what? They didn't. He didn't use that title. This was a little bit more, who is this son of man? Looks like it's kind of God, all dominion and authority and power. We're going to read that in a second. Why did Jesus use the son of man? Uh, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't inspire as much of this nationalistic fervor. It's the... This is, this is some figure he claims to be that has all dominion and authority, not just over Israel and their sovereign borders and their minds, but the entire world, 
Daniel 7, and again, I, we, many of you know this well, but some of you will, this for the first time, this is where he gets the Son of Man. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions. Again, this is Daniel having this vision of the future. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days. That would be the Father and was presented before him. That's what Paul's talking about when he went into a tabernacle, not of this creation, not, not a tabernacle made by human hands, but here now Daniel, 600 years before the time of Jesus, was having a vision of one looking like a human being being brought before the Almighty. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the people and nations and men of every language that's why you son of man, not so that he could overthrow and take over and Israel could become a player on the world stage again. That's not what he's talking about. He has dominion over every people, every language, everything might serve him and his dominion is everlasting. So this is, a, this is someone who lives forever, which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So now he's equating this figure who has dominion over all the nations and authority. And now he's saying, I'm going to prove that by taking control of the natural order. So it's a kingdom that will be a completely new kingdom. New heavens, new souls, as I talked about last week, and new bodies. It's a forever kingdom, not subject to entropy and decay. Daniel 9 verse 26 says, then after 62 weeks, the Messiah, talking about this son of man, but they didn't know that. I don't think Daniel could have seen this. Will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood, even to the end that there will be war and desolations are determined. I wonder if Daniel could have imagined that this one like the son of man, who all, all authority and dominion would also be the same messianic figure who would be cut off. In other words, he's seen a crucifixion happening here. Could this be the same? Could this be one in the same? The son of man. Not only that, not only authority, but now control over the natural order, the demonic, the healing. Get up and walk. It's nothing. Just get up and walk. I have, I have all authority. The one who forgives sins. And now, this is, but also the one who's going to be executed, cut off. Could it be the same? What does this even mean? Well, Jesus, listen to what Jesus says. This is the probably one of the more preached verses on Resurrection Sunday. John 10, 18, no one has the authority to take my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Now, what Jesus is saying and what they couldn't possibly understand, they're seeing a miracle worker. They're amazed with it. They have enough faith to believe, to go to great lengths, to get their paralytic friend down and get healed. And he was, and in the process, his sins were forgiven. Here's my question. Have you ever thought, what happened to the guy after this? He takes up his pallet. He, he walks. I'm sure he runs. He skips. He's glorifying God. I, but then that's all we know. What happened when he got home? 
honey, I'm home. You know, she's thinking, what? He see his voice seems stronger. I mean, we're his friends. And she, can you imagine that moment if he was married or his family or whoever, and they they see that he comes skipping in with his paladin? I mean, they had to be overwhelmed. But then, so they, they they've got to deal with that. And clearly, there was the faith. His sins had been forgiven. Jesus hadn't died yet, but I I would have to assume that when he hears the resurrection and and the gospel begins to be preached through the early disciples become apostles, that he said, well, I I have to believe that this paralytic would be one of those 10, 20,000 Jews who would have believed into Jesus in a very powerful way and have a born-again experience. But what happens after the moment of the sin-forgiving moment, this kind of religious experience. Maybe some of you have had this, or maybe even a healing of some sort. What happens? Well, back to my story with Dennis and Leanne, what happens when you get off the plane and you you finally arrive in Atlanta? Well, here's the rest of the story that I promised you a little bit earlier. So they get off the plane, their, their bags arrived. It was all amazing, you know, and, and, but they get to Atlanta and it is pouring rain, as can be the case in Atlanta. That actually uh, had a little bit of flooding in their area. There had been a lot of rain and the rain was coming down and Dennis turned to his wife, Leanne, and said, <clears throat> well, they only had two small bags. Go, you go secure the bags. I'll run through the rain. I'll go get the car. I'll, you know, get us all, get the car released from its, uh, <laughs> its little prison there. And then I'll, I'll come up to the bag, Jerry, and pick you up. And okay, good plan, good plan. He runs through the rain, gets to the car, gets the car all checked out and comes back. But when he gets in the car, the moment he opens the door, and it'd been, he'd been out here for about, they'd been out here five or six days. The moment he opens the door of his car, a smell that he said, was just unimaginable, like a decaying corpse or something came out of the car and he could he just couldn't even get in. He opened all the doors, what's going on here? And he realized they just purchased a new uh, condominium uh, that's kind of down and they have to take their trash and they put, they put it and then they take it and then they d- deposit the trash somewhere before they were gonna leave. They didn't wanna leave their trash at home. So they were gonna deposit it in one of these receptacles and, on, and in their hurry to leave at 3.30 a.m. or whatever they did, time they left to come out to Palm Springs, he had forgotten to take the trash and dump it and there was chicken in there and there was all that. It had been sitting in a hot, hot car in an Atlanta parking uh, structure for a week. You can imagine the smell. And so he, he opens the door and trying to get the doors open and he can't and he can't find anywhere to, you know, throw this trash there. And so he calls Leanne and he tries to start to warm her up to the idea that she's about to get in one of the grosser smelling things that they've ever experienced. And so he pulls his car up. He's, you can imagine the scene. It's pouring rain, so it's hard to roll down all the windows. The rain's coming in. So you're almost, you know, stuck in this car pulls up, Leanne has the bag, she gets in, she's like, oh my God, it's horrible. And it hits him, you know, like this, uh, just a bullet, you know, just unbelievable smell. And and so she sees a place to throw this trash. And so uh, he's got the car, so they pull up. She reaches in the back seat, grabs the trash, throws it out, and then they head home. <clears throat> so... Well, what happened here? 
I wonder if that's the case with the, the paralytic. He goes home, his sins have been forgiven, he can walk, but he's still got issues. Do you realize that when you first come to Jesus and you drop in on him, he is so willing. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is willing. But when you come, you come with all your garbage and he forgives you of your sins in that moment. He covers you, you become part of the family. That moment, you don't clean up your business, throw out your trash before. You come as you are. <clears throat> he forgives you. He heals your soul. The Holy Spirit is now placed on the inside of you. But then you've got to go back home. And you realize when you get home, again, an analog here, you realize when you get home, well, I've still got a lot of stinky stuff in my life. I still maybe have an addiction. I don't know how to treat people. I really don't have very many friends because I'm, you know, always, as I quoted last week in the message, I may not be much, but I'm all I think about. I mean, you're selfish. We are selfish people. We're, you know, ingrown. We, we got a lot of rotting garbage in our, well, in our life. What do we do? You ever thought about that? What happened to him? Well, I tell you what happened. His sins were forgiven. There was faith to believe. And then he'd spend the rest of his life cleaning that stuff up. This is called sanctification. I'm still in process. Oh my gosh, of course my family will, yeah, we know that, Dad. I mean, we're all in process. We're still cleaning the smell out of our car. By the way, the end of the story. <clears throat> so he gets up the next morning. They'd roll down the windows all night. You know, airing the car out was hoping, you know, after getting rid of it, it would smell. And he, he got in, he had to get to a, a meeting the next morning. He, he gets in the garage, he can smell something. He gets in the car. It's every bit as powerful as it was. He's like, what is going on? This is the smell that won't go away. And he looks in the back seat and there's the garbage. It's still in there. It had sat all night. And he's like, what in the world? I, Lee, I saw her throw it out. And then he realizes there were two bags. The other bag were all these Lynx players hats, hundreds of dollars of hats that he had just ordered, just had also picked up. And in their rush to throw out the garbage, she'd thrown out all these brand new hats. So now we got Lynx players hats running all, if somebody found them in the garbage somewhere, they, they have all these free hats. She had thrown out the wrong thing. And I, I have a friend of mine part of the church at the red door and he goes you know that's kind of the way we are as well not speaking specifically about this but he said when I first became a believer I was like I got to throw everything out I got to throw everything out and yet I was still stinky you know I, I in fact my family well, they were turned off to Jesus because I got you know it's not that we don't try to not sin but he became almost pharisaical in this effort to, to, to get the stink out of the car get the stink and sometimes when we're trying to get the stink out of the car we can throw away well, we can throw some things away that maybe we shouldn't. Of course we should throw, you know, addictions if we're able and as we're able to and things begin to go that shouldn't be there. But sometimes we can become pharisaical in our very desire. It's, it's God who leads us to repentance. It's God who forgives us our sins. And it's the Holy Spirit, according to Titus, that does the cleansing work of our soul. The sanctifying process is even governed by him as well. And sometimes we can become religious ideologues and just everybody has to, it's kind of like somebody with a diet. You know, everybody's got to have, I'm on this diet, everybody's got to have that diet. And if you're not on this diet, you're failing. And people have their own journeys with God. So just relax. Relax. 
Yes, get rid of sin. Yes, throw out the garbage as best you are able to, but be cautious that you don't become pharisaical in the process. So how do I want to close this morning? It's simply this. This is a glorious scene. What do you come to Jesus with? You come with nothing. Spiritually speaking, you're paralyzed. The door's closed to the plane. There's no, the jetway, it's all, it's over. The planes that, you know how that is. I've missed planes where they just closed the door and then I kind of look down there and the plane door's still open. Sorry, it's, we, it's closed and you're just like, oh my God, you don't realize the impact. And they're like, I'm sorry. It's just, we have to do this. Otherwise, you know, we've got to get these planes on time and everything. It was an unbelievable thing that happened, but there you are. You're paralyzed. You, you're helpless. You, there's nothing you can do. So what is Jesus, what is Jesus asking you to do this morning? I still want you to drop in on me. You don't need flowers. You don't need a card. You don't need anything. I'm here because I love you. Drop in on Jesus. Yeah, but you don't understand what I've done, Jeff. You don't understand the background. You understand the, the sin that I have in my own life right now. Jesus would say, drop in on me. I'll do the work of covering you, giving you new desires, do cleansing. I, I will do that work in your heart. It'll be a gracious work of the Spirit. Drop in on me. It's the kindness of God. Again, Romans 2, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's what I get from this glorious story. So anyway, I hope this was helpful for you this morning. Maybe you've, some of you have been walking with the Lord for a long time, but you feel so unworthy. Why do we feel unworthy? Because we are unworthy, because we have been paralyzed, because we are spiritually helpless without the Spirit. With the Spirit, things begin to change. But just know the Lord loves you. He cares for you. Sure, He wants to clean you up. Sure, He wants to get that garbage out of the back of your car. But know that He loves you first. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends here at Church at the Red Door. Lord, would you drive this into our soul? Drive this. We are the paralytic. We dropped in on Jesus when we had nothing to offer. And it's him that we worship because he accepts us as we are. And then he changes us. Father, if there's somebody watching this right now and they've never really truly believed this, but now they see themselves as the paralytic and all of a sudden there's faith that he has and can forgive their sins. Lord, just allow them to utter these words to you. Father, I believe, I, I, I repent, I, I come as a paralyzed person, spiritually speaking. Will you forgive me? And his answer, by the full authority of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, is an absolute yes. And then get ready for the greatest journey of your life. Give you new hopes, new desires, and he will begin to throw that garbage out of your back seat. Love you, church at the Red Door. Uh, have a great week, and we'll see you, God willing, next week.